Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you so much for the, the letters to the Ephesians, Lord, that you inspired Paul to write, um, that you inspired those people as they were guided in which books to include in the canon of Scripture, that you inspired them to place it there. And Lord, you, you, you maintained it in such early versions of it so that we would have this word reliably before us. And it is such a beautiful gospel word and such a, a word for our good and for your glory and for the victory of our God in this world. And we pray, Lord, that today as we wrap up our look at this book, that we would carry the lessons of it with us firmly for the rest of our days. Keep us returning to these truths, Lord, the truths about Jesus and the gospel by which we are transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Today is, in my mind, both a joyful and a sad day. Uh, as I mentioned, and as you would have noticed in the Bible reading, we're at the end of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, it's been quite a ride. Uh, if you're just joining us with us today for the first time in this letter to the Ephesians series, then, you know, just, just, just bear with me here. But uh, over six chapters, Paul's led us to see the depths of the saving truth that is in Christ Jesus. Something as well of the extent to which that truth impacts our lives. We've been called again and again to know the love of Christ. Look deeply into the gospel of God's love for us. Strive to comprehend the breadth and the depth and the height and the length of the love of Jesus. And again and again, we've been called to see that as we know the love of Christ, as we know the truth of the gospel by the spirits working in us it transforms us it makes us to be like jesus be like the one who we are beholding more and more and that's been the theme of these last three chapters the key principle that's come out again and again and again and again is that gospel transformation happens when we uh, increasingly trust the truth about jesus as it applies to every part of our lives if you got one thing out of this whole series just get that if you want to grow as a christian if you want to grow in your walk with god if you want to be more like jesus it's not about following a list of rules alone it's not about dressing in a special way it's 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 not about knowing the right words to say or having the right check boxes ticked on your list you grow as you know him more. As you know the truth about him more and come to a greater relational depth of knowing him. As you know the depths and the height and the breadth and the length of his love and of his glory more. And Paul has systematically uh, taken the truth about Jesus and done just that. He's led us to know it as it applies to our lives. He's applied gospel truth to our life as a church. He's applied it to our lives morally, to our households, to our work, at every stage showing us that the truth about Jesus brings life. It brings life-giving, joy-bringing transformation to every area of our lives. And this week, as we reach the, the final stretch we reach a, a part of the Bible, a, a passage in the Bible that's really well loved over the years for many re good reasons. Uh, it's the call to put on the armor 
of God. And the general call of this section is, is really clear, right? It is, we must stand firm in the gospel, knowing the love of Christ. I mean, you could just, you could just boil that down to a series subtitle, couldn't you? Um, stand firm in the gospel, knowing the love of Christ. Paul opens with this call to action. If, you, if you've got a Bible and you don't have it open just yet, um, I'd invite you to do that now. We're in, we're in Ephesians chapter 6, if that wasn't already made plain. Paul says, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And that sets the tone for this passage as a whole, those words, uh, because it captures this Ephesians theme, which is that our strength uh, is entirely outside of ourselves. So we be strong in him and in his strength, Paul says. This is this has caused these words for humility and for confidence. It's humbling because wouldn't we often rather that the strength was in us? You know, we, we would love it to be just you know, something proud deep down inside each one of us wants it to be, be strong in your strength. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, you know, and that's the end of the line. You know, the song doesn't say anything more than that. I'm not having a go at that song. Um, but, you know, we'd like it to be that we had it in us to stand, that we had it in us, that at the last day God would say to us, did you stand? And we'd say, yeah, I did. I did it in my own strength. It was amazing. This is cause for humility because Paul's pointing something really fundamental to the Christian life out. The only way you're going to stand firm is if you're leaning on his strength. You don't have it in yourself. None of us do. But it's also cause for confidence because we quietly know that that's true, don't we? We quietly know that actually if it was up to me, I'd fail. We kind of, we oscillate a bit. Um, if you don't know what oscillating is, it's what an Oral-B toothbrush does. Um, we move between one position and the other. We, we go from, uh, I'm not paid by Oral-B. Um, <laughs> we go between kind of this bravado confidence of, of like, you know, the strength is in me and, and, and this position of destruction where we just go, well, I'm just not good enough. I can't do it on my own. And, and, and we're completely right when we say we can't do it on their, our own. The point is that it's not caused to be destroyed. It's not caused to be depressed. Because we know that our strength wouldn't be up to it, but in God, we find a limitless source of strength, a reservoir of strength to go on in the strength of his might. And then Paul gives us a sobering reminder of why we need this encouragement to stand firm. He says these words, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see what Paul's pointing out to us here? Over the last weeks, Paul has been practicing gospel application, hasn't he? That's, that's, that's what we've seen, since kind of at least since the, the end of the, the just gospel exposition of, of, of chapters 1 to 3. He's gone gospel application of chapter 4 to 6, where he's going... This is how the gospel applies to your sexuality and your marriage and your church and your, um, your family and your children and your homes and your workplaces. Um, that's what he's been doing. He's, he's, he's spoken not just a moral word, 
to us of this is what you do. He's spoken to us a Christ word, a gospel-centered word to all of those areas of our lives. And the thing is that we might be tempted to get to the end of that and to think to ourselves of all of this gospel transformation uh, that, we're, that we're taking part in, that we're talking about, it, we might think of it as, as being a lot less significant than it is. You know, why would my life here and now matter? Why, why is it important how I live? Why is it important how I live my marriage? Why, why would it be significant how, like, how the church lives towards each other? Out, you know, especially outside of these walls, why would there be any importance in that at all? Why would my work matter, my parenting uh, why would my words, my thoughts, my relationship to alcohol, my sexuality, why would these things matter, at least in any way that extends beyond the fact that they are of great benefit to me? You know, that, that's a good reason for them to be done, sure, but, but is there more to it than that? Like, like, is there any downside to anyone except for me if I don't live these things out? Uh, and Paul has this big answer for us. Uh, he's already talked about the communal dimensions of this earlier in the, chap the, in the letter, about how we affect each other and how our actions have an effect on those outside of the church, but it's a bigger answer than that. He says these things are of cosmic significance. When you engage in being transformed by the gospel, you're engaging in the war that God is fighting in the here and now, in this world, against his great enemy, the devil. Do you... Do you remember the mysteries that we've talked about a few times? If you've been with us, we've, we've brought this up a few times. There, there was two main mysteries in the first half of the book. That Christ is the fulfillment of all things was the first one. And that he is filling all things right now by filling his church. And these, these, these two mysteries are really one mystery because one is the working out of the other, right? The mystery that Christ is filling all things by filling his church. What that means is that when you, when we apply the truth of the gospel to our own lives, to each other's lives, we're a part of God's cosmic campaign of transformation and filling. We are a part of Christ filling all things. We're taking part in God's universal work. We are fighting on the winning side of the war against the powers of darkness which oppose God now. These things are not small. It matters a lot. How you live matters a lot. Let me go off the reservation for just a second here um, and just say also that uh, this verse about who we are and are not against uh, is really significant for how we approach our lives and our relationship to the world around us. Um, Paul, Paul says, he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, and he goes on, the rulers and the authorities and the, power, the cosmic powers of darkness. And that has relevance for us because a lot of Christians, we tend to live like our primary struggle, primary struggle is against, say, political powers or against sinful people or against local people who we don't like. And, and so we become a bitter people in a bitter struggle against the people of the world rather than seeing it as it is. They may serve your enemy, and you may serve God, but the way you serve God is by showing Christ-like love towards those people. They are not your enemy. 
They are you before you were saved. They are me before Christ brought me in. They are those that, that Christ would call us to take the gospel to and show the love of the gospel to, show the brightness of the gospel so that as even if someone is consciously against the church, they would find to their wonder and confusion that the church isn't against them, that we love them because God loves them. If they're against God, they find in us a statement, God isn't against you, he loves you and wants you to be saved. Certainly you stand under his judgment, but he invites you to come in and be saved. All right. Now, Paul um, calls us to this, this iconic thing, right? The putting on of the armor of God so that we may be able to take part in this work of standing firm that he calls to. And really, the armour of God isn't some new step in, in what Paul's been telling us already. Uh, this, is, this is one of those, those many, many areas where we get a bit handicapped. We, get, um, we, we, we slow ourselves down and, and damage the way we, that we read the Bible because we're used to reading it kind of in chunks. And in some ways, the way that we preach the Bible isn't that helpful for that. Um, this, this is why we go through books of the Bible, because we want you to have it in context. But when you think about it, you know, I, I haven't kept count. We've probably done this over 10, 13 weeks, something like that. And, and you know, for them, they would have just read it, you know, start to finish, top to bottom, in a scroll. And, and it's all one chunk. You know, it says lots of things. It's right to preach through it in so many weeks because we find so much in here for us. But we need to see this in its context rather than taking it as this little kind of 10-verse bit at the end. Because it gives us a comprehensive reminder, this part, of the message of Ephesians. To live in the knowledge of the love of Christ. So Paul gives us these six items um, in this call to put on the armour of God. Uh, we're going we're to look now at each one of them briefly uh, because we, we actually do. We want to stand firm in the faith. We want to stand firm in the love of Christ. So first, he says to us, we are to have fastened on the belt of truth. I don't know about you. The belt always seemed to me, like if you're used to reading this passage, you're, you're like, yeah, yeah, the belt of truth, come on, this, this is how it goes. But, but like, if, if, you, if you're first time reading it, think about it, take yourself back there to the first time reading it, isn't belt an odd thing to start with? Like, close your eyes and do it, come on, with me here. Shut, I'm just going to look stupid if I'm the only one doing it. Um, and picture a Roman soldier, right? What's the most iconic thing he's got on? It's not his belt, is it? You can open them. Like, <laughs> sword, helmet. Maybe breastplate, you know, all of these iconic things. But but the belt is where Paul starts. It's not exciting battle armor, but here's the point. We're talking about a day of robes. Okay? The robes, they're dangly. They hang around your feet. And that's the normal way to wear robes around the home. And and the literal wording of this is to gird up the robes. The belt is for making you ready to run into battle. So you don't trip over. Um, and how do, we, how do we do this? How do we make ourselves prepared for battle? Well, just in the way that Paul has been calling us to again and again and again throughout this letter, right? 
with the truth of the gospel. Remember what he said back in Ephesians 4.15, is the ministry of every Christian. We speak the truth in love into one another's lives and thereby grow up into the likeness of Christ. Let's be clear. Don't be fooled about what Paul is saying here when he talks about this belt of truth. He's not talking about just making sure you're generally an honest person. And he's not even just talking about making sure you're a Bible reader. Those, those are excellent, important qualities, but if you just read and are honest, you're not girded up with the belt of truth. Brother, sister, let me be plain here, and I say it because I love you. If, if your approach to being ready to live the Christian life is to be generally honest or to just make sure you pick up the Bible every now and then and read a few words, then you're running into battle with your pants down. You need to be applying the truth about Jesus that we find in Scripture, applying it to your life, and we need to be applying it to one another's lives, as Paul has called us to again and again. That's how we're ready. Second, he calls us to the breastplate of righteousness. This one really reminds us that it is the truth, indeed the truth applied, that is vital. Simply knowing the truth isn't enough. The belt of truth must lead to the breastplate of righteousness, or you haven't grasped the truth at all. Again, let's be clear, God's version of righteousness isn't a list of do's and don'ts. It's found in Christ. Some people think righteousness means not drinking, not swearing, not lying, not stealing. For heaven's sake, don't kill anybody. Those are all things you should avoid. I want to be clear. But God's version of righteousness is active. God's version of righteousness involves living for His glory. It involves caring for the poor, for the sick, for the widow, for the orphan, for the person who's unfortunate in, in their life circumstances or just in the fact that no one likes them. It involves loving and being with and giving time to the people whose society is so irked by that they just don't know what to do with them and ignore them. It involves inviting in the people that no one else wants and, and helping them to feel God's love even around your own dining table. It involves laying your life down for others who don't deserve it because you have a saviour who laid his life down for you and you didn't deserve it. Third, the shoes of the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Are we beginning to see a gospel theme to the armour of God? Yeah? We should be. The readiness of the gospel of peace is our shoes. I, I, I'm convinced for two reasons. One, because it causes us to stand firm, knowing the peace with God that has been won for us in the gospel. Second, because the gospel of peace, and this is the main one, the gospel of peace makes us ready to go, to walk, to carry the message of the gospel to others. This, this whole armour of God, imagery, is, is actually drawn, we're going to, we're going to, Hark back to this in a minute, so, so if you go, hey, you just said that and dropped it, we're coming back to it. But it's all drawn from, from actually from the book of Isaiah, is where Paul's getting his cues here. 
Um, and this particular item, the, the, the shoes, are almost certainly an allusion back to Isaiah 52.7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who publish peace. The gospel makes us a messenger people. And standing firm in the strength of God means being a messenger person, a sent person, taking the gospel of peace out. Doesn't that kick against kind of what we might stereotypically think of standing firm? Standing firm for us feels a bit immobile. Yet Paul's calling us to go. A firm Christian life goes to the world around us. You can't just, you can't be stationary. You don't drift towards this. You have to go towards this. Fourth, the shield of faith is this critical part of the inventory. And, and this is where, um, you know, our, our early childhood education and, and, and just really stereotypes uh, do uh, hold us back a little bit because we, we think of a shield, right? And, and, and you shut your eyes and you think of a shield. You don't have to shut your eyes this time. And, and you're probably picturing the medieval one, you know, with the, with the points on the front and it goes down to about here. Or possibly the, 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 the buckler of, the, of the, the Vikings, you know, the round thing, you know. And um, they're cool shields. They're, co- they're great shields, but they're not the shield that Paul's talking about here because those are both like hundreds or thousands of years after Paul. Uh, the iconic shield of Paul's day was the Roman shield, solid wood, overlaid with leather, reinforced with metal, about the size of a small door, you know, large enough that the whole man can be protected by it. Um, this, is, this is actually where having read Asterix and Obelix comes really in handy, you know, because you, you get the turtle formation before Obelix just knocks them out of the park by 10-pin bowling. But, um, but, you know, it's this shield that the man could put there and it's here, you know, and there and it comes back a bit on the sides and he's protected. It's going to make no sense on the recording. Paul says this shield which covers us is able to extinguish every flaming arrow of the em- enemy. And that's the image there. Like th- no arrows getting through that thing. They would soak it in water before battle so that a flaming arrow would just go out when it hit it. And this is, this is so important to recognize that the shield of faith extinguishes the flaming darts of the enemy because it's so easy to fall for, for that modern secular lie that there is no spiritual enemy. To live like it's true, even if we acknowledge that, it, uh, that, that it's not. The reality is that there is a devil and he has spiritual powers and he is gunning for God's people. The temptation that, that comes your way, it's not accidental. The trials you face are no mere coincidence. The stress that you face that threatens to bubble over into harshness toward others, the frustrations in your life, that threaten to lead to ungodly actions and attitudes. Likewise, the brokenness in you that would lead you to despair and to falling apart and to defeat. Calculated things. And if you are in Christ... 
You have a shield that can stop them in their tracks. Faith. See, the, the issue here is that um, every attack essentially makes it about you. You failed again. This sin will take you down. You need to keep it together. You need to be on time. So you need to bubble over when you don't. God doesn't want you. You're a rotten person. You need to be good enough. So, so, so get it right. Put up a front if you're not getting it right. And make yourself look good. But the shield of faith says it's not about you. It's not about me. His grace is enough. The body and the blood of Christ is enough for me. It's not about me. He has promised to give me faith and to see me through by his strength. I'm standing in his strength, the strength of his might. So it doesn't matter what arrows you throw at me, Satan. You cannot overpower God and he's promised to see me through. This is ours by faith. Our faith is in him, not us. Fifth, so closely related to the, to the shield that we're going to just hit it very briefly, the helmet of salvation. We are guarded by this truth that we have by faith that in Christ we are saved and that can't be taken away from us. Sixth, finally, there's a sword. We love the sword, don't we? We like swords. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Paul says. This, one, this one's worded a little bit confusingly, you'll notice, because although we bear this sword, it is not just us who wield it. But God's Spirit is wielding it through us. It's, it's a picture actually from Isaiah that picks up this idea of, of God having a sword. And it comes up again in the book of Revelation, you might remember. It. He has a sword that comes from his mouth. His words are a, a sword. The point is firm, very much again returns to the ongoing gospel theme of this letter. The one weapon we have for the fight is the truth about Jesus that has set us free. The word in view is the word of the gospel. As we approach every situation in our lives, we fight by asking the question, how does the truth about Jesus speak into this? How does it change me in this situation? And, we, and not, not just for our lives. When, when we are speaking with one another, we, we bring the gospel to bear as weapons on one another's lives for each other's good. When we face one another's sins, when we uh, face one another's pride and brokenness when we face when we when we rejoice together when we mourn together when we sp when we do all these things we speak gospel words to one another this is the call of this reminding each other of the transforming power of the truth that is in Jesus we speak the truth in love and so we're built up into Christ and not just to one another we carry the sword out into the world. You know, we, we, we live in a world of people trying to find answers to questions that can't be answered outside of the gospel and we carry it out with us. 
We've got to be so careful not to just throw the world's answers back at the world and avoid the gospel. There are so many gospel opportunities if we're ready to take them. Paul's going to move on now and he's going to give a final call to prayer. That's where we're going to end today. Um, I apologize if you were looking forward to the little farewell bit at the end. I, I usually make a point of preaching them and we just we just ran out of time. And if you'd like to talk that over with me, you can. If you want to berate me for skipping part of the Bible, I would welcome it and I would agree with you. Um, but before we move on to that, there's, there's something else we need to say more generally about the armor of God. At every point, of the armor of God, like we mentioned before, it's alluding to or even specifically quoting from the book of Isaiah, right? Um, listen to this. Um, righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. That's a, that's a, that's a cherry picking of, of some verses from the book of Isaiah. But what's incredibly important for us to recognize what, is that um, all of those allusions, all of those verses are words that are describing the armor that God wears and that his Messiah wears. In Isaiah, it's not a, it's, he's not talking to the people of Israel and saying, put on the armor of God, you know, have, have a breastplate of righteousness. He, no, he's, sa- he's saying, um, your God has put on a breastplate of righteousness. Your God has, has uh, the feet that bring good news. His Messiah is this one that's being described. And, uh, and there's loads that you can take from the connections back with the book of Isaiah. We're not going to do all of them. I just want to point out re- two really quick, really big ones. First, before we ever go out to fight, our God has gone out and won the war for us. Paul calls us to stand firm and we need to pay attention to that certainly we absolutely need to be careful and be attentive and like soldiers in the battle on the front watching ourselves being careful and helpful to watch one another and help each other to stand firm uh, and in line with the gospel but before we ever go out to fight our God has won the war he uh, we may need to suffer for the gospel we may need to, to carry some of that, but we need to know that the blows that we deserve were carried by our Saviour for us and they are dealt with. Second, the armour we wear and the weapons, the weapon we carry are the same weapon, the same armour which God himself has used and is using in, in his war to defeat his enemy. When Paul says, put on the armor of God, he doesn't just mean put on the armor that God has given you. He says, put on the armor of God. When we equip ourselves as God has called us to, we are putting on his armor that belongs to him. And the way that God defeated his enemy and showed himself sovereign and mighty and undefeated was through the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ, the good news of his love for his people, which drove him to come, to live, to die, to carry our sin and our shame. And he is now risen victorious.
That mighty gospel is the same armor that we wear as we stand firm in the war that God is waging in this world through us. At, At the end of this passage now, Paul gives us an extended call to prayer, reminding us of of kind of two things. First, reinforcing again this truth. Our strength is in dependence. Not independence, in space, dependence. Not only are all of these weapons and these armor outside of ourselves, but we only acquire and use them through dependence in prayer. He's so careful to end on this because he knows we need prayer. We have to be praying for God to be working the power of his gospel through us. I was just really struck by this very recently that that you know, when we started out as a church, actually, no, go back before that, um, months before we started as a church, you know, every, everyone in this room who I thought might have ended up in this room, you know, some of you immigrated from South Africa or, or came from New South Wales or something like that, and, and you know, I couldn't have guessed that. But, but those who I thought maybe, you know, I was praying daily for us by name that God would make us a, a gospel-centered missionary disciple people when we started out as a church, we were meeting together. We, we had a monthly prayer night. And it was one of those, you know, it ends when it ends sort of prayer nights. Uh, well, actually, no, that's not true. I think we said at end time. And it was, it was uncomfortably long for many of us, but we did it and we prayed and we strove and we, we did that because power was, prayer was powerful. And, and we aimed to l- roll that into our gospel communities. And recently I've just felt very convicted by the fact that I just feel like prayer doesn't take as serious a place in our church anymore. So expect to see changes. There you go. <laughs> um, haven't landed on what that looks like yet. Sorry. We have to be a praying people for the power of our God to be flowing through us. It's so important. Second, Paul closes with one very speci- specific prayer point to pray for all the saints and for him in particular that words would be given to speak the gospel. Church, we need to be praying this for one another. We're never going to be a a gospel-formed people, a gospel-speaking people by trying super-duper hard. We are called to strive, we are called to stand, but we're called to pray and to ask. We're called to beg and to plead and to know that our God loves to give to his children. Your, your brothers, your sisters, we, we need your prayers. Would you pray with me? Lord, let not the words of this letter fall by the wayside. Let us not hear 
the need, read the need to be a people formed by your gospel and go on living unchanged. Lead us, Lord, to stand firm in your strength and in the strength of your might. Lead us, Lord, to one day be able to just revel and rejoice as we look back across our lives on your strength at work to defeat your enemy in our lives. Lead us, Lord, to be a people of the gospel truth, a righteous people who know your righteousness in us, a gospel people who have the readiness to take it out, a people of faith who are never struck down because we trust in you, a people who know the saving work of Jesus in our lives, and a people who bring the sword of your gospel to bear on ourselves on our brothers and sisters and our neighbours in this world. Work a mighty work in us and in our time. Work a transforming work by your gospel, by your power, and by your spirit, and in the name of Jesus. Amen.